Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. I think the rest of the country is watching California and saying, please let us not end up being California, um, which is maybe useful. I, you know, I think some of the other states that aren't quite as bad yet are going to try not to get there. But you guys are a big chunk of the national problem, and there are an awful lot of people who need a place to live. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with CalMatters. And I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, February 11th, Liam, it is election season, for better or worse. For, yeah, I think both. <laughs> In terms of workload, yeah. worse, I think, for uh, our profession. Mm-hmm. But housing has emerged as a major issue in the Democratic, the quest for the Democratic nomination. And it just so happens we're weeks away from the official date for the California primary in March. You may and, have already gotten your ballot. And you probably did already yes. get your ballot in the mail. And so we are here to help you. We are. We will be breaking down in some detail some of the major Democratic candidates' housing plans. And there are housing plans this time. Which is new and different. It is. Mm -hmm. And we have the perfect guests to talk about these housing plans with. To be fair, the perfect guest would have been one of the candidates in our vast and influential audience. Please know that we tried. We did. Yes, but... Sadly, no. None of, none of them wanted to engage, engage with you, which says a lot, I think. Yeah. Um, are they prioritizing California <laughs> as much as as much as, as they, they say, say they, they are? are? Right. But we have uh, Jenny Schutz from the Brookings Institute. Uh, she has tracked all the Democratic candidates' housing plans and also um, recent federal uh, 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 concerns around housing in the Trump administration. So uh, we have we had a good talk. Uh, we did, um, and a lot of the major policy proposals, eerily reminiscent of some of the state policy proposals me and you have talked about at length on this podcast. Uh, Eerie. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Disturbing in many ways. (laughs) Um, Okay, let's get to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is... The avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. Um, This avocado takes us to fertile ground for absurd California housing stories, and that is prime real estate in... San Francisco. So uh, this this avocado uh, reminds me of one that we did last year where what a great deal if you think about it without knowing the details. So last year was $1,500 uh, rental in San Jose. Sounds there pretty good. Go. Uh, but the, the, the twist then was that- You had uh, to be a cat. You had to be a cat. And in yeah. fact, there were two. They, they, they did have a roommate. Yeah. So two cats, that's the $15 rental was an apartment for cats in San Jose. Here we got what sounds like a great deal. Prime real estate, close to the Embarcadero in San Francisco, the ballpark, all the good things, right? You can have a lot of fun around here. Yeah. Only $100,000. Sounds great. Wow. What's, what's the catch, Liam? It's only a house if you're a car. <laughs> that's a very eloquent way of putting it. Yes. So it's a $100,000 parking spot. Yeah. Uh, so this comes from ABC7 in San Francisco. Um, and again, I will just read from the story. $100,000 can get you a house in many places across the U.S. In San Francisco, the only listing for $100,000 is a parking spot, and the agent says he's getting calls. One block from the ballpark and one block from the Embarcadero, so it's not only a good place to park your car and to park your money, said Bill Williams with this Real Estate. Got jokes, this guy. Yeah. 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 Well, so do we. Indeed. You know, um, I don't know how you cure your Twitter-induced insomnia, Liam. Uh uh Um, I actually hesitate to speculate how you do it. 
But uh, for me, I go on Zillow, which I think a lot of people do, and okay. I go to other parts of the country and uh-huh. just kind of see what's out there. Uh-huh. Um, and one of my favorite locations to scout properties is uh, Detroit. Okay. And do you think the median home value in Detroit is more or less than a parking lot in San Francisco? I already know the answer to discuss this, so it's difficult for me to play Thank this game. Thank you, as always, for playing along. <laughs> How many multiples less? <laughs> oh, since I know the answer, uh, I'm going to say five and be surprised. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> the median price of a house in Detroit is 35 grand. Wow, okay. So you can get three houses in Detroit for, for the one price of one lot. prime parking spot in San Francisco. Yes. So yet another example of how insanely expensive um, everything is in San Francisco and the, the nice housing tie-in. A lot of people say when we build more housing, let's not build more parking, which would actually arguably help. Yeah. Uh, you have a parking this... shortage, presumably the price of parking would go up. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So this guy is probably rooting for more housing without more parking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that concludes the avocado of the fortnight. Uh, let's move on now to the uh, emergence of housing and housing affordability uh, and housing affordability issues in the 2020 campaign. Uh, let's actually start with a, a broad question here. How much power does the president have to actually fix California's housing problems? I mean, I think they could have a lot if they really wanted to, but we certainly have not seen that uh, ever. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, um, it seems like there are a lot of other issues that take uh, precedence. Yes. Um, Although we have uh, seen uh, a significant uptick and increase in amount of interest and attention at the federal level on, on, uh, on, on housing in this campaign. Yeah, I think that's right. I think if a president prioritized housing, obviously you would see much more action on it. And it'll be interesting to see whoever ends up uh, being president, um, where housing ranks in terms of their legislative priorities. Right, because we were talking about this a little bit, but like you mentioned earlier, all of the policies that have been discussed in California – uh, you know, could in some extent be 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 rose up to yes. to have the federal level do it too. So whether tying federal funds um, to potentially zoning changes or implementing local policies that would be uh, promote housing affordability, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, the state is a big pot of money, but yes. the federal government has a, a vastly larger pot of money that if it really wanted to get serious about any number of things, it it, it could actually do it. Yes. That being said, housing and especially land use issues continues to be a primarily locally determined yes. thing. Yes. So and the farther you get removed from that state government, federal government, the the harder it is to actually change, right? Yes. If you look at something like homelessness, I think there's probably more precedent and easier policy levers for a president to push mm-hmm. um for for more action than, you know, uh things that might help uh, California build more housing right. or even more low income housing, right? Sure. Yeah. So uh, let's actually start with the incumbent um, for president, and that would be President Trump. We can take a, a look quickly at some news that broke this week, which was the president's uh, budget proposal, which is in line with his previous budget proposals, which is a good indication of kind of what Trump, I think, wants to do. Which is less. Trump said he wanted to cut HUD. Federal Housing and Urban Development Department, um, their total funding by about 18%. That's around what he's proposed cutting mm-hmm. um, pretty much every year since he's been in office. He wanted to completely scrap the commu- the Community Development Block Program, which is um, a program that's been a long, long time, which provides money for 
affordable housing and infrastructure for um, lower income neighborhoods. For lower income neighborhoods, mm-hmm. he wanted to scrap the uh, a couple affordable housing funding programs entirely. I think what's interesting is these proposals have come from the Trump administration before, and none of them have really been enacted in the way I think the president and his administration would have hoped. And some of the other policy proposals, which you know don't have to go through the uh, Congress as much, um, whether it's um, taking away Section 8 vouchers from uh, families that have an undocumented immigrant in their household, whether it's dismantling this thing called affirmatively furthering fair housing, which was an Obama administration initiative that and reducing segregation. I- exactly, yeah. those are still in the process of being executed. They they haven't been done yet. And in some cases, there's been some litigation surrounding exactly. them and those sorts of things. But obviously, these do things directionally show the area in which that he is um, uh, 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 emphasizing through his housing policy. I think probably the one thing that has uh, gotten the most light and heat particularly on the president's Twitter feed, has been his constant refrain about homelessness issues in California. Um, And then when you kind of look under the surface, and and to be fair, um, he has consistently uh, lied about the the state asking for help or not asking for help when in fact they have. I mean, it's, you know, a pretty, it's a lot of uh, bluster, uh, which you tend to see. Um, But... um, uh, uh, you know, if you look under the hood a little bit to, to actually what they're proposing. Um, yes. There tends to be a push for more uh, emphasis for using law enforcement mm-hmm. um, and punitive measures uh, 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 with respect to sort of clearing areas uh, in cities to uh, ostensibly um, uh, deal with street homelessness. Yeah, and we haven't seen any specifics beyond that, but that kind of is the directionally the the policies that he's. Yeah, using. that's the gestalt. Arguably, some of the biggest impact Trump has had on California's housing crisis has been incidental or collateral. Yeah, and I'm thinking of his trade wars and the mm-hmm. imposition of tariffs. Right. Um, if you talk to home builders um, in California, they'll say that has increased the price of home building here. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, tariffs on timber, on steel, on aluminum, and then the the other major kind of collateral impact. Um, would be the impact of tax reform. I don't know. 2017. If you... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we actually around that time did an episode where we, we talked about the how the changes to uh, sort of uh, uh, business taxes uh, changed some of the incentives surrounding uh, the low income housing tax credit program, which is the predominant way that that affordable housing is funded in California and nationwide, uh, making it less um, uh, of uh, giving less attractive, less financially attractive for banks of these large investors to invest in affordable housing because their taxes are being cut anyway. Now let's move to uh, some of the Democratic candidates' plans. Um, we have invented a gimmick here, as we are wont to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's award season, Liam. It is. Yeah, I know. I, you're I'm a in huge... L.A. I, 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 you know, I went to the Grammys. Yeah, I know. Yeah, um, it was st- magical. If you're a huge Billie Eilish fan, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, we'll be giving out what I'm calling the gimmies. The gimmies. That's good. Yeah. See, you surprised me with that one. I didn't heard that before, and now I'm like really feeling good about it. Great. Yeah. To be very clear, these are not awards for the merits of any of these housing plans. No. We're not endorsing any of these housing plans. We're being very descriptive. Exactly. Yes. And the title of the award will help with that description. Yes. You'll see what we're talking about more momentarily. Okay. Okay. Let's start here. The gimme for the most non-existent housing plan among the Democratic uh, presidential field goes to... 
Joe Biden. Not a lot of competition, I would say. No. In, uh, in this one. Biden kind of had it going away. Yeah. So there's a, actually a funny headline from uh, the website Curbed uh, last month. Then it says, uh, where's Joe Biden's housing plan? Which kind of gets that gets at it. Um, but he's the only really major contender now without a for a formal housing plan. Um, he has discussed a couple housing ideas. Yeah, kind of like um, an urban revitalization plan. Yeah, an urbanization sort of fund and housing was a part of that. He yeah. also did an interview in January with the SACB. Um, and he said essentially that everyone who uh, that no one in this country should pay more than 30 percent of their income on housing yeah so that would of, of course require especially given here in, in 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 california where the housing is so expensive a dramatic expansion in uh, section 8 federal housing vouchers uh, yes. which is on which that standard is based yeah uh, but not a lot of detail on how that would work and not a lot of detail on how that would be how that would be paid now let's move on to our next award our okay. next gimme okay so the gimme for the most tenant-friendly housing plan goes to Bernie Sanders. Ah, yes. Yes. Senator from Vermont, mm -hmm. Democratic Socialist. Uh, Sanders is the only candidate that has um, officially put in a rent control plan on a national basis as part of his. Yes, a national. I mean, other candidates talk about rent control, but he is the one where is federally we're going to have it. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it, it is stricter than the anti-rent gouging cap that um, was put in place this year in California. It basically allows uh, for a 3% increase. I'm gonna gloss over some of the mechanical right. details right. here, right. Um, but a 3% annual increase. It includes protections for just cause eviction, so forces landlords to disclose a specific reason why they need to evict someone from their property. Sanders also wants a ton more funding for affordable housing. He also wants to loosen some zoning restrictions. Yeah, and it's interesting that he you know, talks about that. I know there's a, a, a conversation on, on there. the big debate on the left uh, yes. about that, but he does in fact talk about um, loosening zoning restrictions like uh, a number of the under ca other candidates, including those that are uh, more moderate than he is. Yes, he also mm -hmm. wants to do a vacancy tax mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and do some type of punitive tax on uh, house flippers. Let's move on to the gimme for the most detailed housing plan goes to... Elizabeth Warren, the senator of Massachusetts, not a shocker. No, it's funny uh, that all of it, that all of these uh, all of our things tend to align with all the stereotypes Fate we have about all the, all the yes. candidates. Yeah, but she has. I mean, it's a pretty detailed uh, plan. Uh, she yeah, not only she says, look, we have independent analysis that says my plan will bring down rental costs by ten percent, and we're going to pay for it by increasing you know estate taxes, and so we get all the bases right covered. Um, Five hundred billion new, new affordable housing. Uh, when it comes to zoning restrictions, she wants um, to incentivize uh, cities and states to get rid of them uh, through a program that was uh, done race for the top, which was a a, a program that would uh, yeah. and other administrations, previous administrations, to change uh, education rules. Um, some down payment assistance for first time home buyers from historically segregated and redlined neighborhoods. Um, she too d talks about some tenant issues. A uh, two kind of interesting things. Um, wants to block states from blocking local rent control. And yes. In fact, in her plan, she specifically cited uh, the failure of Proposition 10, which in 2018 would have allowed for local governments here in California to um, uh, uh, expand the rent control. She said Prop 10's failing was bad, uh, so she wants to wants to prohibit uh, issue, yes. or, or laws like Costock. And, and to be clear, yeah. that's also an element of Sanders' plan, too. Yes, yeah, but I thought it was interesting that she would— um, 
specifically call it out in her yes. plan. Uh, also, um, she's perhaps perhaps best known for being a part of the genesis of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau um, w- w- during the Obama administration. And she has, uh, has suggested creating a tenant protection bureau within HUD that would do uh, similar things for tenants' rights, uh, take on per her plan, uh, bad actors, etc., and so that's uh, that's her. That's the summation of, of her plan. Let's now go to uh, the Gimme Award for the most McKinsey esque housing plan. And what uh, what does McKinsey esque mean? Uh, like technocratic consultant. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. consultant speak. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, oh, what, we have a shared award here. Do we not? We do, yeah, yeah. It's a tie, a tie, the first in yes. Gimme Award history. Yes, yeah. Uh, who who got the tie? Uh, two mayors. Yeah. Uh, so Mayor Mike Bloomberg from New York, um, and Mayor Pete Buttigieg from South Bend, Indiana. And Bloomberg has been especially aggressive uh, in California, specifically. This is his big play. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, he came to Stockton yep. uh, to unveil his housing plan. The mayor of Stockton, Michael Tubbs, is an endorser. Yep. Um, so Bloomberg's plan guarantees housing vouchers to all of those that are uh, making uh, 30% or less of the median income, expands housing vouchers, tries to try tie t- transportation funding to areas that have re- reformed their zoning codes. Yeah. And so very much a kind of, you know, we're, look, we're going to hear a lot about AMIs in, and things like that in uh, area median incomes and percentages in Bloomberg's plan. Yes. Uh, you know, those sorts of ideas. So let's talk a little bit about Bloomberg's history when it comes to racial politics and housing. So what's interesting, uh, you know, Bloomberg, I think, was one of the first uh, at a city level to talk about rezoning as an imp- uh, recently, I suppose, as an important thing to do to deal with housing yeah. affordability writ large. Right. Yeah. And so he talked about rezoning and upzoning areas. But when you look at the record, it's kind of really mixed at, at best. I mean, this is so this is information that's coming from a book uh, called Newcomers um, by Matt Schurman, a reporter at, at uh, WMIC looking at gentrification. And Bloomberg rezoned 40% of the city when he was in office. Um, but the overwhelming percentage of those rezonings were actually down zonings in wealthier communities, um, majority white communities, while those that were up zoned had much greater percentages of blacks and Latinos. Okay, let's talk about Mayor Pete's housing plan. Uh, Mayor Pete, co-winner of the McKinsey-esque Gimme Award. Commit, I've commit ki- to I've the ki- gimmick. Committed even more. Okay. <laughs> Um, a lot of similar elements to other candidates we've discussed, a major right. increase in affordable housing, funding funding for low-income housing, mm-hmm. um, some recommendations for loosening zoning requirements tied to federal funds. Right. Uh, probably the most innovative thing is this 21st Century Community Homestead Act, which really tries to incentivize home ownership, um, particularly for African-Americans, so especially African-Americans who um, lived in a neighborhood that was redlined. Yep. Let's move to the last award, and I'm actually going to rename this award. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, I'm going to call this award the Gimme for the candidate that appears to have momentum in the moderate lane um, <laughs> of the Democratic primary. Wow. Okay. Really specific. Yeah. Um, uh, the gimme goes to uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar what a of, shocker. of Minnesota. What a shocker. Um, so I would kind of phrase her plan as essentially doing the things that we have now, but Democrat-y, you know, like like put more money into the low-income housing tax credit. Um, uh-huh. uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, we have the Section 8 program. Uh, make sure that everyone who is eligible for it has it. Yeah. You know, these sorts of things that are kind of the backbones of the housing policy that that we have uh, federally, 
um, she wants to basically put, throw more money into um, improving them such that everyone who has the ability to have access to it would, in fact, get it. Yes. Right. Um, there is some also conversation in her plan about um, uh, zoning rules. She said she'd prioritize um, uh, areas in, in when awarding federal funding of housing, both housing and infrastructure for areas that, that she says would have good zoning plans. And she positively cited an area in her plan, uh, a, a region in her uh, home state, uh, Minneapolis, which recently uh, became the first major city to end single family only zoning, which we did a podcast about. Mm -hmm. I, I want to pull out some specific highlights that I think unify some of these plans. Yeah. Um, and what jumps out to me because of the nature of what we do yeah. is many of these ideas, and we get into this with the interview with Jenny, yeah. many of these ideas have been proposed in California and then have run into significant political opposition yes. in a state with a Democratic governor and a Democratic supermajority in the legislature yes. and overwhelming Democratic uh, uh, registration advantage yes. among voters. Yes. And they can't Pretty get blue. them yeah. done. And right. so things yeah. like Senate Bill 50, right. which is uh, some of the zoning reforms that are, you know. Anticipated or, or, or uh, contemplated in a lot of these plans. Exactly. Right. Things like rent control. Right. Mo stricter rent control, which right. voters rejected in California right. in 2018. Right. Things like tying transportation funds to. Uh, loosening zoning requirements, right? right? Which mm -hmm. the governor came out with yeah. and went nowhere. Went nowhere. Yeah. So, uh, what do you make of that? Well, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think there should be some healthy skepticism to the extent to which yeah. uh, these could these could get done, even in a world where Congress was known for passing legislation, exactly. major legislation, or passing major funding for for new for new things. Yes. And so, um, while I do think that uh, certainly the attention that's been placed on housing is probably good uh, for addressing some housing issues, mm -hmm. right? Uh, just because it's in someone's plan, perhaps obviously stated, doesn't necessarily mean even if there's a good college try, if you will, given to do some of these things that they would really materialize in yes. a meaningful way. Yes. Yes. I think that the question is whether it is politically more difficult to do it in D.C. Right. And typically the answer to that question for is, other issues is, is yes. 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 Mm -hmm. Now, the caveat is um, that housing housing issues don't cleave ideologically very cleanly. Right. And so maybe there's some room for bipartisanship. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I would be uh, somewhat surprised if um, there was a huge bipartisan housing push. Right. Right. Uh, no matter and, who's in the president. And we also see, um, I think, while perhaps um, the candidates talking about housing more in their plans, uh, it's not really breaking through the national conversation no. at least when it comes to like things like debates. Yes. You know, we have not had very few, uh, really maybe one, if I can recall correctly, um, questions about housing yes. at, at these debates. Not even the debate that was held here in Los Angeles was with housing, uh, you know, a part of it. Yeah, and so, shockingly. Yeah, and so you'd think that um, still, even in the national consciousness, perhaps is not has not broken through to the same extent that it's part of the California consciousness. Yes, I think there's also an easy explanation for that, which is um, there is a ton of overlap in these plans. Yeah, and housing doesn't have some of the litmus test, um, soundbitey quality as, let's say, Medicare for All, right? Sure. Where mm -hmm. you can ease, okay, this person's for it, this person's not, right? right? And right. that I right. might base my vote on that, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Anything else on this topic that you want to hit? No, let's get to our interviews. Let's talk to Jenny. Mm -hmm.
We're here with Jenny Schutz. She's a fellow at the Brookings Institute Metropolitan Policy Program. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. So when we talk about California's housing issues, we focus on local policies. We talk a lot about state policies and we don't talk a ton about federal policies are we derelict in our duties as housing reporters? Well, the federal government traditionally foots the bill for a lot of low-income housing. Um, it sort of fades into the background a little bit if you're not focused on that. I mean, I think in the grand scheme of things, California has created a lot of its own mess at both the state and the local level. Um, you know, the federal government is sort of providing money to back things up. Um, but there's an open question about whether, in fact, the federal government could lean on California a little bit more to clean up its own backyard. So I want to drill in on that a little bit. Are things so screwed up here because of state and local policy, or are things so screwed up? Yes. Oh, that, there you go. <laughs> Answer. There was no, there was no counterfactual. Yeah. There. That was just it, period. So yeah. in, in yeah. what way is federal policy hurting California affordability issues, and then in, in what ways is it helping? Well, in some sense, uh, at the moment, the federal policies are kind of enabling California's local governments to continue with their bad behavior. Um, so a good example is the housing voucher program, which is the primary way that we help poor people pay the rent. The formula essentially says that low-income households who get a voucher will spend 30% of their income on housing costs, and the federal government picks up the rest of the tab. So in San Francisco, where you know you guys tell me what the median rent is on a studio apartment, Too much. the household subsidy is really big compared to, say, a market like Omaha, um, where the rents are much lower. So the federal government government has you know, set up a system to help low-income families, which is a great thing, but it also doesn't create incentives for, say, San Francisco to try to make housing cheaper because the San Francisco Housing Authority isn't footing the bill for the really high rents. What should the federal government, in your mind, be doing? I mean, there are a couple of things. One, just directly, we could rearrange the way housing voucher funds are spent um, so that instead of giving a small number of households a really big subsidy, we give small subsidies to a whole bunch of households. So one of the problems with the voucher program, because it's really pretty expensive and it's not an entitlement, not everybody who qualifies gets a voucher, you wind up with people who sort of win the lottery that they get this really big subsidy and a ton of people who are just as poor and are eligible who get absolutely nothing. And one thing that we could do is just say, you know, San Francisco Housing Authority, you have X number of dollars but you need to spread that across more households. And so if you reduce the size of the voucher for each household, then the housing authority has to start thinking about, well, you know, if I'm only giving people $150 a month as a subsidy, then it makes sense to bring down the cost of rent. So that's actually something that we could do sort of within the scope of existing programs. I think the more fundamental question is, could the federal government in some way get California's local governments to change their requirements and the housing development process so they build more housing and build housing more cheaply where people want to live, which would be better on not just poor people, but everybody who has to pay the rent? So the state has tried that approach with varying degrees of success, right, trying to either incentivize or coerce local governments into ch changing their zoning regulations or other impediments to building more housing? What could the feds do that the state can't? The Fed has some pots of money that they could use. Um, and I should say that the, the state has sort of tried, but arguably not with a lot of enthusiasm or energy. Um, so all the local governments have to have these uh, regional housing needs plans that they submit to the state. My understanding is that most of the time, 
you know, the plans haven't really had teeth. So if they promise they're going to build a bunch of housing, they don't actually build it. Nothing happens to the local government. Okay. Um, and so the state could argue. I thought this was going to be the one interview where we'd get away from Rena. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, so, yeah. Sorry. Go, yeah, go ahead, Jenny. Going, yeah. uh, Can't let them off the hook. Yeah. Right. Um, and my understanding is that they are trying to tighten that and make the existing programs have a little bit more bite, um, you know, which is useful. Things like suing local governments um, for not uh, sticking to their plans is also, you know, having a little bit more teeth. We're sort of in uncharted territory about what the federal government could do in terms of financial levers because we haven't really tried this before. You know, so one option would be potentially the funding that the federal government gives either to the state of California or directly to cities and counties could be made contingent on improving their housing production. I will say, I, I think it's more likely to be effective if the funding isn't contingent on you need to rewrite your zoning to make it look on paper like you're friendlier to building housing. It should be tied to actual outcomes because it turns out that exclusionary suburbs are super good at revising their zoning on paper and not actually falling through by building anything. One counter to this was something the feds could do, which they did more of in the past, was provide more money uh, to subsidize low-income development or even do public housing. Federal government, and particularly under this administration, has made a number of recommendations to cut or to try to cut these funding programs back even further. What's wrong with understanding that in order to to build enough low-income housing, the feds are going to have to kick in a lot more money? There's certainly a role for continued federal funding to maintain the existing low-income housing. Um, you know, a lot of the public housing that still exists at this point is old. It's not in particularly good shape. There are health hazards to residents from living in it. And sort of building the public housing and then not providing enough money to maintain it and upgrade it over time is pretty irresponsible. So, you know, across the country, we ought to take it seriously and provide enough funds for this. Um, on the other hand, you run into the same problem with enabling you know, should we be giving California LIHTC dollars uh, when it costs $500,000 to build a quote unquote affordable unit in most of the state, which is again twice what you're spending to create a new unit someplace else, and even more expensive than just using the LIHTC funds to buy existing properties. So, you know, the way the- By LIHTC, you're talking about the the, the low income tax credit the the federal government. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Which is at this point the primary production mechanism for affordable housing since we don't build public housing anymore. Yeah. So, it's, you know, it's similar to the vouchers that the way we've designed the public programs, there's no incentive for cost savings from the people who actually do the development. Um, so, you know, the developers and the the state who's providing the, the tax credit allocations, they have no incentives to kind of do this more efficiently and save money on the costs. Um, and arguably, all of the public programs should try to stretch the subsidy dollars to cover as many households as possible. And it's just clear that we're not doing that either with vouchers or with LIHTC. So you've analyzed uh, many of the Democratic presidential candidates' housing plans, and we're going to ask you about um, some of them in a second. But before we get to this, I was curious, how much power does a president actually have to help fix California's housing crisis? Not a lot directly. Uh, I mean, the president has a couple of tools. So even just the bully pulpit is actually pretty useful. Um, so talking about problems and focusing people's attention on it can be useful. You know, And I will say that housing hasn't been an issue like healthcare or education that comes up in not only in presidential debates, but just gets talked about a lot by federal elected officials. Um, and so you know, having conversations about the fact that large swaths of the country 
country aren't building enough housing to keep up with population growth and job growth, and that this is in part a function of the policies that local governments have chosen. You know, most people in the U.S. who don't spend their lives thinking about housing policy, I think, don't know that we have a problem or don't understand the reason of the problem. And the president and the secretary of HUD have huge megaphones to talk about this and just raise awareness. So I think that would be a really useful function to do. Some of the functions of HUD, even without having more money, are just being able to get people into a room to talk about things. So bring in some of the um, local government leaders, both who are problematic and need to change their zoning, and some of the ones who are doing things well, and put them in a room and talk to them. You know, bring in the governors who are trying to get uh, their local governments to revise zoning and ask them, what could the federal government do to provide support to state and local officials who want to do the right thing, but are under political fire from their constituencies? And the other thing is providing probably some technical assistance. So one thing we tend to forget about local governments is they're big local governments, like Los Angeles is huge. I mean, you know, the number of people who work for the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles is like bigger than a bunch of towns. But there are a whole bunch of towns that probably need to do different things with their housing production process. And they've got like one part-time planner that they share with the next door town. That's not really a lot of capacity to think through how they could do things better. Um, and a, a, you know, a key role of the federal agency is to provide both some funding and some technical assistance and advice on how to do things better. So those are all things that are you know, not even leaning on it, not even using sort of the, the stick approach, but just could provide some support and some encouragement for the local governments that want to do things better. You reference a little bit, but I've been surprised, and perhaps you've been too, about the extent to which a lot of the Democratic candidates are talking about housing in a way, presidential candidates, in a way that really has not been something that's been discussed at, at this stage in the past. What do you attribute that to? Is it simply that the problems, particularly in markets like California, are as bad, as gotten as bad as they are? Or do you think there's another kind of uh, more other underlying issues that is driving this increased interest on uh, housing in this campaign? There's both a, a political side to it and an economic side um, that are not surprisingly linked. So, you know, the, the Joint Center for Housing Studies just put out their latest report on the state of rental housing. Almost half of renter households in the U.S. are spending more than 30 percent of their income on rent. Um, so that's almost half of the renters who HUD considers to be cost burdened, um, and that's climbing farther up the income ladder. So this isn't just an issue for poor people, although poor people are really screwed. Right. But a lot of middle income renters are really feeling the pinch, um, and they're starting to tell their elected officials about it. You know, not coincidentally, renters are more likely to be young. They're likely to live in big cities. They're likely to be somewhat lower income and more likely to be non-white. Those are all really key constituencies for the Democratic Party and especially for some of the progressive candidates. You know, so I, I think both that there's a genuine sense that this is a problem and we have to deal with it. You know, it's gotten beyond sort of just being a poor person problem, but also, you know, politically, these candidates are hearing it. Which of the Democratic candidates' housing plans do you like the best? There's actually a lot of overlap sort of focusing on the people who uh, are, are still in the race and active at this point. Um, you know, between Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, um, Elizabeth Warren, and Mike Bloomberg, there is a lot of similarity in kind of big stuff. Um, so I think it's kind of three buckets that a conscientious plan should talk about. One is addressing the fact that poor people really can't pay the rent um, and having some sort of proposal to deal with that. Another is addressing the fact that we have a, a shortfall of housing production that's caused by these local zoning rules and at least thinking about what could be done at the federal level to change that. 
Um, and then the third is addressing the fact that we have really big racial disparities in homeownership, which matters because homeownership is the primary way that middle-income families build wealth. Um, and so on kind of these three big buckets, really all of those candidates identify the same sets of problems. They have slightly different solutions, and they're certainly proposing kind of different amounts of money and energy to throw at it. But there's at least pretty broad agreement between all of them that those are the problems that we should be trying to solve, which I think is great, right? These are all problems that we should talk about and haven't talked about. So I'm, you know, start off very enthusiastic that this is getting some airplay. You know, the fact that we've got a whole bunch of candidates who say in their plans on their websites that zoning is a problem, you know, five years ago, I would never have imagined that we would have that. One issue when it comes to these sorts of ideas, particularly in an environment where it's not easy to pass a lot of legislation in D.C., is which candidate do you think would prioritize housing based on what you've read and what you've heard and following the campaigns, as opposed to, say, other issues, uh, healthcare, immigration? Which one do you think that would, irrespective of their particular plan, would say housing is a top three, top five, even top 10 issue? Yeah, I mean, that's a little hard to know because they haven't they haven't come out with a list of priorities. Um, Elizabeth Warren was the first candidate to put out a comprehensive housing plan. So she actually put out a, a fairly ambitious bill um, in September of 2018. So she was really very far ahead of the field. And in true Elizabeth Warren fashion, it's incredibly detailed. It's, you know, 70 pages. It covers every kind of market. It sort of thinks through all of the different local geographic variations. That this was one of her early proposals, even before she started throwing out, you know, plans every other week, I think signals that this is something she's thought about. It also aligns with some of the same issues that she was working on with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So I would guess that that's probably pretty high on her list. The other candidate who I think is probably inclined towards this is Mike Bloomberg, in part because he was a mayor. He was a mayor of a big, expensive city. You know, he has experience working with housing issues. His administration did a bunch of rezonings. Um, and so it's a it's a topic area that he's certainly very familiar with. You know, he hasn't been in the market for in the race for that long. But again, this was a plan that he put out fairly quickly um, and you know, sort of covers all of the right notes. Do you have any sense, following up on that a little bit, which, and this is a question we got from our audience on, on Twitter when we asked, told folks that we were going to be talking to you, which of these policies, are there any that would you could do through executive action or would kind of all of them, or at least the big ticket ones, would, would have to go through legislation to, to advance? All of them are asking for more money. So they're going to have to go to Congress and get more money. Right. Bernie Sanders is asking for more money. Um, I think his is probably the most problematic um, because he wants to do some things that haven't been done. So beyond just working with existing programs and providing more funding. Um, so he has a you know, very ambitious proposal to impose sort of a national rent cap, similar to what California and Oregon have passed. Um, you know, that's something, it's not clear what the what the grounds are for doing that, but that also would take enforcement mechanisms that we just don't have and kind of an infrastructure that we don't have. Um, so I think that one's probably pushing the boundaries more than the others. All of them are asking for more money, although some of them are leaning more heavily on the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, which is not a congressional appropriation. That's money that is created from uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I think they're also making some sort of optimistic assumptions that funds are going to continue to come from Fannie and Freddie, um, although we're in the process of potentially exiting them from conservatorship. And so there's sort of a big question mark whether that kind of free money stream is likely to continue. Real quickly, tying federal funds to zoning reform changes at the local level. Is that something that could be done without congressional approval? 
That's a good question. Um, my it probably depends on what kind of funding stream you're looking at. So like the Community Development Block Grant. Yeah. CDPG, I, I'm pretty sure that you would have to get congressional approval because there's a formula system for allocating that to local governments. Okay. Yeah. The, the same thing would apply for um, Department of Transportation funds um, because it's allocated by formula. Even just the public transportation stream of that um, would need congressional approval. There, There is actually a bill floating around the Hill that would tie the New Starts program. So new funding for public transportation infrastructure to um, changing zoning. There's some interest in doing this, and I think that's probably one that Congress would be maybe more willing to try. It's not a ton of funding. It goes to only you know a handful of localities each year, but it seems like kind of low-hanging fruit. It's interesting because many of these ideas that are in these candidates' plans and that are floated at the federal level here in California, similar incarnations of these ideas have been floated. We are, you know, a very progressive state in many ways. Certainly, we have Democratic supermajorities in our legislature and a Democratic governor. And if you go through it one by one, a lot of these ideas couldn't get through politically here, right? right. Rent control right. was rejected by voters here. Right? One of the planks of Sanders can't platform, right, yeah. is housing plan. Newsom couldn't tie gas tax revenue to uh, cities meeting their housing goals, which sounds similar to tying federal transportation revenue to zoning changes. Real robust zoning reform. Exactly. Yeah. So I, also failed. Yeah. How Here. politically realistic, if it can't get done in California, um, is it to think that any of these can get done in D.C.? I mean, that's a good question. Um, you know, in some senses, the debate is harder to have in California because the problem is so acute. So many people are having trouble covering their housing costs for for so long. It's so awful. You know, the, the, the level of acrimony in the debate is, I think, higher than it is in most other parts of the country. You know, people have been... Because we're so awful. <laughs> You're you telling guys us. know. You're there. <laughs> but, you know, people have been yelling at each other and not hearing each other yeah. for so long. And the positions are really entrenched. Um, you know, so that makes it harder. I think, it, you know, Oregon managed to get a bunch of stuff done that California's been trying to do. Right. Oregon hasn't been yelling at itself for a, you know a decade or more on this stuff. True. I yeah. think some of the national stuff might be easier to get through just because it doesn't bite everywhere. Um, so in some sense, you could imagine some coalitions in Congress where places that don't really have a shortage of housing, that don't have particularly high housing costs, could vote for this. You know, for a bill that is going to spank California and Massachusetts and New Jersey. Um, you know, if it's not going to affect them. But I don't know. I mean, this is also it's an issue that doesn't cut clean across party lines. You know, certainly the... That's why it's so fun. Yeah. I mean, there, there are plenty of progressive Democrats who are really deeply entrenched in, let's not build more housing because we don't want developers to make money. And then there are people who are, you know, at least on kind of the libertarian end, who would like to have more streamlined markets and less regulation. Um, you know, I don't know how many libertarians we have in Congress at this point, but maybe there's a coalition there. I want to ask a little bit about federal spending and federal subsidy. For a long time, and this is still the case, when you look at the mortgage interest reduction, capital gains exclusion, all of these things are huge subsidies to homeowners. In fact, there's billions more at the state level, but also more dramatically at the federal level that go towards uh, subsidizing homeowners than money that goes towards tax breaks that go towards subsidizing low-income renters. What do you think about, first of all, Jack, is two poor question. What do you think about how those policies are structured now? And B, is there any serious conversation about further changing those? Things? Well, one of the maybe very few good things that happened in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017 is that the value of the mortgage interest deduction got 
uh, reduced quite a bit, right. both because they lowered the cap from a million to 750, but even more importantly, by raising the standard deduction. Right. Like That was great. So a bunch of people who were sort of marginal homeowners who might have been pushed into it by the tax advantage, you know, now have that taken off the table. And so, you know, middle income renters and middle income homeowners get treated exactly the same way under the tax code. So that's a big improvement. And hopefully that stays in there. But that tax cut um, money didn't you know, go to help low income. This money they saved from credit, yeah, didn't go to help. It did them. not. Right. No, right. In, in, you know, if I were in charge of the federal tax code, we would have slotted that money directly over to expanding the housing voucher program. Right. But I think once we have started to cut into the mortgage interest deduction, and it turns out the housing market didn't collapse. So all the people who said you can't take this away or it'll like destroy homeownership, right. that turns out not to be true. So it may be easier to continue shrinking that and, you know, with a sort of a different leaning, be able to take the savings and switch that over to, you know, maybe a targeted first-time homebuyer tax credit or directly to renter programs. But, you know, I think that's sort of the breaking of the dam and it may be easier to do further reforms. You know, the capital gains exclusion accrues to even fewer people. Um, You know, it's really hard to justify that on sort of good tax policy grounds. Um, But I think that's less salient to people than the mortgage interest deduction. But let's also, I mean, let's not forget that California at some point needs to grasp its other sacred cow, which is to deal with Prop 13, which is not just a subsidy to homeowners, but to homeowners who've been there for a long time and who are older and wealthier. Um, And that, you know, that also makes sort of other housing reforms in California more difficult. If the older homeowners who've been there forever had to pay an appropriate property tax based on the value of their property, some of the you know one-person households living in five-bedroom houses would sell them and move on. Jenny, is there anything else that you want to add or uh, tell our vast and very influential California audience? They're leading the way, and uh, everybody else is watching to see if they fail again on whatever the next round is of attempted zoning reform. So hopefully you guys will get your act together. <laughs> I say this lovingly to the whole state. As a former resident, too, just so. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Uh, how, I mean, just how big of a laughingstock is California in terms of housing policy from your national perch? Well, I don't know if laughingstock is the right word. It's a cautionary tale. Um, I think the rest of the country is watching California and saying, please let us not end up being California, um, which is maybe useful. I I think some of the other states that aren't quite as bad yet are going to try not to get there. But you guys are a big chunk of the national problem, and there are an awful lot of people who need a place to live. So all joking aside, build places for people to live. Jenny, uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Give Me Shelter, the California House Impressive Podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And me, Liam Dillon. I am at Dillon Liam. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.